0: Awesome, so uh, as many of you know, we are continuing with our series called The Big 12, um, where we're going through the Old Testament and just looking at major characters and kind of looking at their stories, their examples, and how we see Christ through them. Um, during the wedding, we uh, just got married, for those of you that are new here, um, but uh, we had lots of pictures, and so it's kind of funny how you get to see family resemblances, right? Have you ever done that? You ever looked at like a family portrait, and you're like, oh man, like I've got their nose, or like their chin, or like their lack of hair. You know, um, you you start to notice like these these similarities in the family, and you're like, oh, so that's where that came from, or like that's where this came from. And it's like it's funny when it's you know, I mean, when it's like physical characteristics. You know, my dad's six two, my mom's five three, and so I got stuck in the middle. Um, but then, uh, but then, like when you get around your family, you know, when you get to know them a little bit more than just kind of like what they look like, you know, you start to see some of the characteristics, right? I mean, you get to a family reunion or something happens, and you're like, man. man. Man, I have their sense of humor. Like, or that's where I'm so sarcastic, or you know, whatever else it is, but you start to see these character traits that are from your family. And because family affects us, who we're related to, who we're close with, right? It's ultimately because who we're close with, who we spend time with, they and how we relate to them, it affects us. It rubs off on us. And so our hope is, guys, when we're doing the sermon series, is that Jesus says that his family His family isn't merely those that are blood-related, but he says his family are those that do the will of God. And so we believe as Christians that, that when we receive Christ, when we have the Holy Spirit, that we have a new family. That we are ingrained in God's family as God's children together. And ultimately, we believe that the Old Testament isn't just some history book, but we believe that it is stories of our family that it's stories of our great, great, great spiritual ancestors. And so our hope is, guys, as we go through this, that we would hear these stories afresh and we would see areas in which, man, so that's where that courage has been ingrained. God used this person. Or that's where this faith, Father Abraham, and how God used that. Here's these failings, how I've seen, and how it plagues us, and how we can be wary and watch out. And so please... Go through and read through these stories, read through these characters, and allow their examples and allow what God has done through them to shine a light and to exemplify what's going on in your own life and how God would use them afresh to guide us. So in saying that, this week we are going to go through the prophet Elijah, um, probably one of my favorite characters, very, very interesting, um, brief chapters. His story is found in 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, but a couple things before we jump into Elijah's story. We need to understand a little bit of the political landscape, and we also need to understand a little bit about the, prof- the, the role or office of a prophet. So we, most of us, have been born and raised in a democracy, right, where um, we get to vote. We have some say, however much it matters, we do have at least the option of voting and the option of voicing our opinion and saying that we have a voice and we matter. If a group collectively decides they don't want something, then you know, we get to try to bring legislative change to that. You know, There's a process through which laws are formed and made. It goes through you know, um, voting. And, and This is very different, though, than ancient Israel. right? We learned last week about Solomon, and, uh, and before that, we learned about David. And they operated underneath a monarchy, underneath a king. And sometimes this monarchy was more appropriately called a dictatorship. And it was where one man would take over and take control. And based on his leadership, so the nation went. And so if there was righteous and healthy influence and leadership, then so the nation would go and be healthy and righteous. And if there was evil and wicked, so forth would it go. There wasn't a lot of, or as much resistance or as much process where the people got a say. And so we see that there was a united kingdom, that there was um, there was Saul, David, Solomon. And this was kind of the, the golden age of Israel. There were 120 years where there was this united kingdom and where things seemed to flourish. Even though there was evil, even though there was struggle, they were united. They were together. And this is kind of held up as the, as the golden age, as when they had this united area. But underneath Solomon... The kingdom broke. Remember, we learned last week that Solomon had uh, had wisdom and wives. He perhaps appropriately um, was the wise king who acted foolishly, and because of his foolishness, the kingdom was broken and was divided. Because of his many wives, he was led astray, and the kingdom was split. Solomon's son Rehoboam should have taken the throne, but there is already unrest within the people. And so, when Rehoboam came to take the throne, he was advised and he was told. Take off some of the forced labor that your father has imposed upon the people. They are going to break off. And instead, Rehoboam didn't listen. And he said, you thought my father was harsh? I will make him seem as if he was light compared to my hard labor. And so the people rebelled. And the people people chose a new king, Jeroboam. And so the kingdom that was united became divided and was split into a northern kingdom, Israel into a southern kingdom called Judah, And ten tribes, ten tribes went to the north with Jeroboam. And two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, went to the south, um, which is called Judah. And they were there. And so the kingdom remained divided. Now Israel had 19 kings, 19 kings throughout their divided kingdom. And all of them were evil. Every single king was evil. Judah had 20 kings. Eight of them were righteous, though. It is in this time period that we see Elijah comes on the scene. right? Elijah comes on the scene in the middle of this divided kingdom where there's constant war with one another, there's constant war with other nations, and they're struggling internally to find any kind of righteous leader. Elijah comes into the northern kingdom of Israel. right? And so the kings usually were leading people straight through false idols. Now the two main ones were there was an idol called Baal, or Baal, you see it a lot in the Old Testament. There's one, another one named uh, Asheroth. And these are Canaanites or Phoenician gods that Israel started to take in them. Baal literally means Lord. And it was uh, a very... Um, flexible term and they used Baal as kind of whatever they felt they needed at the time but traditionally Baal was a storm god so you would see the pictures of him holding a lightning bolt but he was also a fertility god and same thing asheroth was a fertility god is that they would do sacrifices and uh, and offer things on the altar in order that they might get you know their crops to produce or in order that they might have fertility and bearing children and they would do all these things Now these idols, these cults, were marked with ecstatic worship. They would throw themselves, they would be wild, they would cut themselves. Oftentimes there was cult prostitution and there was human sacrifice. Usually the firstborn would be given over in hopes that there would be fertility given to the land. And it's this that, that you see the prophets are continually coming and wailing against and calling out and calling to repentance. And this is where we learn about the office of prophet. We've seen that Nathan was a prophet before that came and rebuked David. But Elijah comes, and the office of a prophet was a specific office. There are three main offices in Israel at the time. There's king, priest, and prophet. The king was God's ruler given to lead the nation. The priests were God's people that he gave to intercede for the people. They were to know the people and intercede for the people and bring the people to God. The prophets were the ones who were to display and to speak God's word and his truth. Basically, the prophets were the whistleblowers. If anything and everything went afoul, then the prophets were the ones that were coming and speaking from the Lord to set things back up. And so it was a very unique role in this time to help steer the nation, to help bring a whole people back. And so this is kind of the context in which we hear Elijah's story, is that there's a divided kingdom and Elijah is this prophet come to help call the people of God back to him because they've fallen astray into false idols. We first hear of Elijah's story in in 1 Kings 17. We don't know too much about Elijah. We know that he's a a Tishbite from Gilead, but we don't know anything about his family history. We don't know how old he is. The first thing we see is that Elijah is told, and the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and he he says, go to Ahab. King Ahab was the evil ruler at the time in northern Israel. He said, "Go go to Ahab, and I want you to tell him that it's not going to rain or even dew until... I give you word that it will. And so Elijah goes to Ahab and he tells him, he says, the Lord, the word of the Lord has come and says that it will not rain or dew until I proclaim that it will. As you can imagine, Ahab wasn't too happy about that. And so God sends Elijah away to hide because Ahab is seeking out his life to kill him. And he goes to this brook Cherith and Elijah is there and God provides for Elijah. He wakes up in the morning, he drinks from the brook and the ravens come and they bring him food. And this goes on for a time until there's no more water in the brook for him to drink. And God then sends him north to, this is to Sidon to a widow. God tells Elijah, he says, go ahead because I've already prepared a widow that's going to come and it's going to take care of you. So Elijah, this prophet of God who has the power to call down rain, is now sent to a foreign land to take provision from a widow. And so Elijah goes into this widow's house. And he goes to the gate inside on. And he sees the, the widow gathering six and he tells her, he says, gather for me something to drink and gather something to eat. And she says, all I have is a little flour and a little oil. And I am in this very moment about to go prepare it that me and my son might eat it and die for we have nothing left. And Elijah says, well, that sounds good. Prepare me some before you do it. <laughs> and he also says, <laughs> along with that, don't worry. Do not be afraid, for the Lord will ensure that as long as there is a drought, you will have enough oil and you will have enough flour to last, all the while there is a drought. And so the widow says, as you have said, so I will do. And so she goes and she prepares a cake and she gets Elijah water, and Elijah lives with this widow and with her son for time. And it says that each day they woke up and there was enough oil and there was enough flour continually relying upon the Lord's supernatural provision. It was in the middle of Elijah's stay with the widow that her son dies. And she calls out to Elijah, why have you come and why have you visited my sins upon me that my son might die? Elijah takes the widow's son and goes up and he prays the Lord. He says, Lord, bring back the life into this boy. And he lays on the boy three times and then brings back the boy into his mother. And it's in this moment that this foreign widow makes a proclamation that none of the Israelites made. And she said, Now I know that you are a true prophet and that the word in your mouth is the word of the Lord. It's when this happens shortly after that the Lord comes and visited, visits Elijah and tells him, I want you to go and I want you to confront Ahab. He's seeking you. I want you to seek him. And so Elijah goes and he meets a guy named Obadiah. And he tells Obadiah, go get Ahab. Obadiah says, no, because you're going to disappear and then Ahab's going to kill me. And so he, he says, listen, I've been righteous. I hid away the prophets of the Lord when they were killing them. Ahab killed you know, killed everybody and I saved 100 prophets. So I, I don't want to like die at this time. And Elijah says, no, go and tell Ahab, for I will remain here, for I will confront him. And Ahab comes, and Elijah sees him. Ahab says, what what have I to do with you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah says to Ahab, you are the troubler of Israel, for you are the one leading the people astray and serving the Baals, forsaking the Lord's covenant. He says, I will challenge you. Gather the 450 prophets of Baal. Gather the 400 servants of Asheroth, and meet me at Mount Carmel. And so Ahab does so. He gathers the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth and they meet at Mount Carmel. A large gathering, all of Israel, the nation comes out to see and Elijah stands there and he proclaims, how long will you differ between two opinions, Israel? If the Lord is God, then serve him. But if Baal is God, then serve him. They remain silent. Elijah said, this is what we will do. We will take two bulls They will take one and I will take another. We will offer sacrifices and whichever God answers by fire, he is truly God. The people said this sounds good. Let's see it. So the prophets of Baal stand first. Imagine the scene. Imagine Elijah standing alone while a large multitude, 850 prophets, go and build an altar, cutting up the bull the nation of Israel sitting around, King Ahab in his throne sitting from afar watching the spectacle. They begin to cry out and chant to Baal, asking that he would come down. As the hours pass, they begin to chant and scream, flailing themselves around. They begin to cut themselves so that blood begins to fill their garments and stream down. But yet, as noon approaches, there's no answer. There's no sign. There's no fire. It's in this time that Elijah starts trash talking them. He says, what's the matter? Is your God asleep? Should we wake him up? Maybe he's relieving himself, going to the restroom. Do we need to help? Maybe he's lost. We should go find him for you. He says, it's my turn now. He goes and he rebuilds the altar of the Lord that was at Mount Carmel. He takes 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel and he builds it. He sets together the altar. He cuts up the, the bull and he puts it on the altar. And he says, not, not only this, but I want you to get four jars full of water. And I want you to pour them all over the altar. Not once, not twice, but three times. Until the altar is brimming full of water. And everything is, is drowned. At this, he turns and he offers a simple prayer. He says, I come to you, God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I ask that you would prove and show yourself that you are the true God, that you would draw the hearts of your people back into yourself. Answer, come and consume this by fire. And with that, the Lord answers. Fire comes from heaven, and everything, the altar The sacrifice, the water is licked up and there is nothing left. At this, the people of Israel fall down and worship and proclaim God is truly real. The Lord is God and we will worship him. Elijah turns and says, you guys are dead now. (laughs) And so it goes and the 850 false prophets are slaughtered and are killed because of their leading the people astray. It's after the land has been cleansed of idolatry and healing and revival comes that Elijah turns to Ahab and he says, you better, you better get to Jezreel. You better go back to your palace because it's going to rain so bad that it will flood you if you don't get there. And at this, Ahab leaves and Elijah lays prostrate seven times and cries out to the Lord that he would send rain. His servant goes up in the seventh time. He sees a small cloud. I love it. We're in St. Pete so we can see this visual he sees a small cloud building over the ocean. And as it comes, it grows and the storm builds and it begins to rain and monsoon. Elijah runs back to Jezreel, as you can imagine, expecting a a favorable rival, only to encounter a death threat sent by Queen Jezebel, saying that if she will die, she says that she wishes the gods would do more so to her if she doesn't have Elijah's head by tomorrow. It's at this threat that Elijah tells and runs. Gripped by fear, he forgets. And he runs far and fast. He goes and he drops off his servant at Bethel. And he keeps running to the point of exhaustion. The point where he can't go anymore. And finally he has to sleep. It's in this that the Lord shows up with an angel and wakes Elijah up and feeds Elijah a hot cake and a jug of water And he wakes him up a second time and reminds him and does it again. And he says, you will not be able to make the journey unless I provide for you. Elijah, at this, finally is able to be strengthened. He goes on to the Mount Horeb. The last prophet, the last man of God that had been there was Moses. And he goes to the mountain of God to seek God's face. He hides in a cave and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I am alone I only am serving you. Everybody's forsaken you and I alone am left. God calls him to come out in the mountain and a, a strong wind passes but God is not in the wind. An earthquake comes but God is not in the earthquake. A fire consumes but yet God is not in the fire. And then Elijah tucked in his cave hears a still small voice come and he comes out of the cave and it's in this that the Lord speaks to him. He, he says, Elijah, do you not know you are not alone? He reminds Elijah of his mission and his purpose. He sends Elijah out with a new task and with a new purpose and a new mission. Not only that, but he reminds Elijah that he's not alone. That God is the one that keeps his people. He says, Elijah, at this time I have 7,000 men that have not called or bowed, the, bowed their knee or kissed ball. I will keep my people for myself. It's at this that Elijah is strengthened and encouraged and he leaves and walks out, sent back on the mission of God. The next time we hear of Elijah is once again to confront Ahab. Ahab wanted a vineyard for himself. His neighbor Naboth had a a, a beautiful vineyard and, and Ahab wanted it for a vegetable garden. He wanted to transform it. But Naboth refused to give it. He said, this is my father's inheritance and I will will not give it for any amount of money. I will not trade it for any property. This is the land and the property that God has given to me and to my people and I will keep it. And Ahab went back to his palace and he was dejected. He was sad because he couldn't get what he wanted. It's at this that his wife Jezebel comes up to him and she says, why are you so sad? And he tells Jezebel, I'm sad because I wanted this property but I can't get it. Jezebel begins to mock him. Are you not the king of Israel? Can you not have your way? Can you not do as you please with your country? It's at this that Jezebel hatches a plan. She sends a letter in Ahab's name to the elders and leaders of the city. And she tells them to hold a fast and to put Naboth at the very front of the table. And they are to find wicked and worthless men that are then to accuse Naboth of cursing God and of cursing the king. And that they are to stone him to death. The elders and leaders carry out the plan that Jezebel hatched. And Naboth is slayed. Jezebel then gives the vineyard that was Naboth's over to Ahab. And she says, Here, this is the field that you wanted, is it not? It's at this that Ahab comes, or it's at this that Elijah comes and confronts Ahab and he says, The Lord knows your sin and has been found out. And because of your sin, you will be cut off. And your, your generation will be cursed. The dogs will lick up the blood with, your, with, with Jezebel. Surprisingly, Ahab actually repents. It's in this moment that, that Ahab puts on sackcloth and ashes and he mourns, he humbles himself, and he seeks the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Elijah and says, Because, have you seen? Ahab has humbled himself. And because he has humbled himself, I will postpone the judgment that is coming upon him. I will be gracious in these moments. We learn, learn through the story that Ahab dies in battle years and years later, and Ahab's son, King Ahaziah, comes in his stead. This is the next time that we see Elijah. is Ahaziah has fallen and has become sick because he fell, and, and he is inquiring whether he's going to live, but he doesn't ask Elijah. He doesn't seek the God of Israel. Instead, he sends for the gods of Ekron. And he asks for the seers that are there, asking, am I going to live or not? Elijah hears word, and he comes, and he he meets the prophets. He meets the messengers that are coming back to King Ahaziah, and he tells them to tell King Ahaziah that he will die. He will not live. Is there not a God in Israel that you were to seek that you have to go to foreign gods and ask? And so they bring it back. And as soon as King Ahaziah realizes that it's Elijah, he sends, a, he sends the army after him. And so he sends 50 men to get Elijah. And Elijah prays and calls down fire from heaven that consume the first 50 men and their captain. King Ahaziah sends another 50. And the same thing happens. Fire comes down and consumes them. He sends a third 50. And at this time, the third 50, the captain, the guard, finally is wise enough. And he falls down on his face and says, please. Please take the life of me and the men, and precious, don't consume us by fire as you've done before. And it's at his fear that Elijah relents, and the Lord says, now go with him. And so Elijah goes with this army and with the guard of 50 and tells King Ahaziah that he will surely die. And he does, because he had forsaken the Lord and because he had gone after false gods. Elijah's story concludes with him being taken up in a whirlwind. He poured his life and his ministry into another, Elisha, as God had called him to. And he crossed the banks, and he goes, and he is taken up in a whirlwind and um, a chariot of fire. And the mantle that was given to him is passed on to Elijah, and he is given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And thus, Elijah didn't die, but was taken up to be with the Lord. So this is just a brief summary of Elijah's life. Um, But there's a ton of different things that we have to learn from it. So I want to take a couple minutes and just talk about what is Elijah's example? What are some negative things and what are some positive things that we should learn from his story? The first thing um, I think is is something positive is that Elijah exhibited courage and obedience to the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I listen to Elijah's story, I'm marked by the courage that this prophet had. I mean, can you imagine the first thing that we learn is that he's going to confront the most powerful man in the land that has been known for slaughtering the people of the Lord. King Ahab has already killed tons of prophets, and God calls, God calls Elijah to go and confront him without not the fear of your life. And so not only that, but time and time again, Elijah shows, shows courage. He stands up in the face of fear, and he does what the Lord calls him to do. And I think that that his example should challenge us and encourage us. Right? I think it it should challenge us because we need to think about what courage is. What is courage? Right? Courage isn't the absence of fear. Right? All of us have fear. Courage is instead persevering even though we feel fear. Even though fear might grip us, courage is standing in the midst of that. It's enduring it. C.S. Lewis um, has a, a really good quote. He says, Courage is not simply one of the virtues but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality, a chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. What Lewis is saying here is he's saying that courage is the means through which our virtue is demonstrated. It is the way we realize what we actually believe. You want to know what you actually believe. What are you courageous about? What are you willing to stand up for? What are you willing to give your life for? That is the truest demonstration of what you really believe and is the truest declaration of our character. And so it challenges us, at least for me, it challenges me because I think about what is it that we are courageous for? What is it that we actually stand up for? Are we courageous in the way that we love people? Are we willing to put ourselves at risk that others might know that they're loved and valued? Are we courageous in the people that we meet or do we simply stick around people that are like us? Are we willing to put ourselves in awkward situations that we might meet people and encounter and love people that are different? Are we courageous in how we follow the Lord or do we simply follow what others do? Are we willing to listen when he speaks and stand up against the crowd? Are we courageous in standing against injustice? When we see something that is done wrong, when we see those that are sitting or those that are being trapped, are we willing to stand up? Are we willing to speak? Not with arrogance, but with great humility, with compassion, but with conviction. What are we courageous for? As we look at Elijah's example, I think that it should challenge all of us. It should challenge us to stand and to be courageous. All of us have fear. All of us have things that we struggle with. What does it look like for you to be courageous in your life? What does it look like for you to stand up against the fears that plague you consistently day after day to to face them? Now, Elijah's example doesn't just challenge us because I think sometimes if we look at that, sometimes that is daunting, right? I mean, Elijah's a pretty courageous guy and we don't often have the exact opportunities that he had. But it also really, Elijah's example encourages me because where did he find his courage from? Elijah wasn't just naturally this amazingly courageous person. You know, I think as a culture, we value courage, don't we? I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the virtues as Americans. I think we really value. We want courage. I mean, you look at our favorite movie, Braveheart or Gladiator or any of the Marvel movies, right? And it all has this idea of this courageous leader that's going to risk their life for something that they think is noble, is valuable, But we, as a culture, like to watch those movies and like to watch other people being courageous rather than ourselves being courageous, right? It's a lot easier watching somebody else sacrifice something and stand up and maybe lose everything than ourselves actually having to do it. And so sometimes it's defeating. Sometimes when we think about us actually doing that, we think, well, I'm just not that person. I just haven't been given the ability or the gifts or the gumption to really be courageous. And for me, it's really encouraging to think about where Elijah got his courage from. Elijah faced fear, but he got his courage from the Lord. Is that he would go and spend time with the Lord, and it was the word of the Lord that brought him courage, brought him strength, because he knew who his God was, and he trusted in that. What brings you courage? It doesn't have to be your personality. It doesn't have to be your upbringing. It doesn't have to be the the people around you. If the Lord is the main influence in your life, if he is the main one that is rubbing off on you, then he wants still courage in your heart. He will be the one that will be with you and stand behind you whenever you're facing something. And and isn't it encouraging also to know that no matter what God called Elijah to, God was with him. God didn't call Elijah to something and then back out. That's our our deepest fear, is that God's going to call us to something and we're going to lose something. We're going to lose friends, we're going to lose a reputation, we're going to lose a job, we're going to lose something that we really desire. And it's so encouraging to know that whenever God calls us to something, That he is going to be behind us. And in fact we never lose but we always gain in him. We always gain in him. That might not look like physical material possessions. That might not look like relationships at times. But in him we always gain. It always builds us and makes us more into Christ's image. So we see a, a model, an example through Elijah of courage. And we see that specifically through his prayer life. The New Testament, James talks about that, that Elijah is a man of prayer and to be exemplified and that his strength came from his prayer life. And I, I can tell you personally for me that the strength of my prayer life is almost the determiner of my strength in my Christian walk. That your time spent on your knees before the Lord is a thing that will lead you to stand before men. That unless we hit our knees before the Lord we won't stand before other people. We will bow before them. So, our prayer life is a huge determiner in our in our courage. Um, one of the negative examples in like turn was that uh, Elijah exemplifies he was both a, a courageous prophet and also a cowardly prophet. Elijah exemplifies a, a negative example of, of running away in fear. Can you think about a better mountaintop experience than Mount Carmel? Think about all the dreams and all the prayers that Elijah's been praying for his whole life. I mean, he's, he spent three and a half years in isolation with a widow being provided for ministry isn't always easy right i think that's something that we need to learn we live in a culture where we think things should be easy should be handed to us should be pretty simple and we learned that ministry was actually pretty dull for elijah a lot of times you think about what was it like for elijah to go and, and to have this power and god told him that he can control the weather right he's told by god when you give the word it's going to rain you know and he tells that and then god tells him go in isolation Go by yourself. You're going to sit by a stream and you're going to be fed by ravens. I'm sure that was a lot of fun, right? I'm sure going and, and being a man. Now he's told it. Who, who's going to provide for you? I'm going to provide for you, for you through a widow from a different country, right? So you're not even going to provide for yourself. You're not going to work for you. But you're going to be provided for by a widow from another country. And that was three and a half years. That had to be pretty boring. That had to be pretty dull. And I'm sure Elijah felt like, why am I not on the front lines? Like, this is this is a waste of time. Why shouldn't I be here? Can you imagine a megachurch pastor saying, like, hey, guys, um, I'm going to take three and a half years off, and I'm just going to go spend some time with a widow and with her son. I'm sure lots of people would say, well, you're wasting your life. What are you doing? Like, you have better things to do. But, yet that's exactly where God had him for the purpose that God had him there for. And I think part of it was to develop him. It was to develop him that he might be able to stand I think the front lines are very different than we think. We think the front lines and we look at Mount Carmel and we think that that's the front line. But Elijah wouldn't have been able to stand at Mount Carmel if he hadn't have daily relied upon the Lord for his provision three and a half years. Sometimes the ability to stand in the front line and to, to be in the battle comes in the daily one through each day choosing to trust the Lord, each day choosing to seek him. I, I, I bet you that if Elijah hadn't done that, he wouldn't have even seen Mount Carmel. He wouldn't even have the opportunity to stand in that. But it was his daily standing that allowed him to come and have the courage to stand before all the, the whole 850 false prophets. But Elijah still runs, right? I mean, he's in the middle of this great revival where everything that Elijah prayed for, I mean, he's just seen God come down in fire and consume the altar. He's had all false idolatry consumed and, and left from Israel. The people now who are worshiping Baal proclaim that they are now the lords, and he comes back probably thinking, "Hey, man, King Ahab saw this. He's got to have repentance. He's got to come back to the Lord." But instead, he comes to a welcome home that says, "Hey, thanks for all the great work you've done, Elijah. Now we're going to take your head." A great welcome home gift, I'm sure, but it's in the it's when Elijah does that he forgets right after the middle of a mountaintop, and we kind of say, "Elijah, how did you forget? Like, how did you not?" see you you ran from queen jezebel because she threatened to kill you but you just saw the lord consume an altar with fire from heaven and you saw a drought three and a half years end with your word like how are you scared and man it's at this moment that elijah's story so reminds me of peter so reminds me of peter's story peter's bold, peter's courageous peter's rash right and and jesus comes when they're on a boat Jesus comes to him, and he tells Peter, he says, they, they think it's a ghost, right? And, and Jesus, he calls out, Peter calls out to Jesus, and he says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to walk on water, and I'll walk. He makes this courageous statement of faith, and he sees God move. I mean, can you imagine being Peter and stepping out on the boat and starting to walk on water, you know? I mean, it's got to be the same thing for Elijah. It's got to be this mountaintop experience of your life. You're like, man... I've been like, this is possible. This is really possible. But it's in the exact moment of his greatest courage that we see he begins to fall. Why? It's because he took his eyes off the Lord and he got fixed on the situation. It's because he became so elated in in the high point that he forgot that there was only a high point because he was relying upon God. That he didn't do this on himself. It wasn't by his strength, by his courage, by his ability that he was where he was. But it was only because he was focused upon the Lord. And we learn that from Elijah. We learn that from from Peter. Is that it's so easy to take our eyes and take our gaze off of the Lord. And to fix them on our surroundings. All of us have things that we fear. All of us can be consumed and driven by our fear. We see that with Elijah. Right? What did his fear do? His fear wore him out to the point of utter exhaustion. He ran as fast and as hard as he could away from the threat that he thought. Man, I'm so thankful that God's merciful. Because God didn't come in, God didn't judge Elijah at that moment. God didn't condemn Elijah at that moment. What did God do? God provided for him. God came and condescended in his mercy and his grace in the midst of him being consumed in his fear. And he reminded him that he was God, that he would provide for him. He once again, he spoke to Elijah what did he speak? He spoke words of comfort, and he spoke words of mission. The thing that helped Elijah get outside of his fear was encountering who God was, remembering that God is the one in charge of his people. Elijah was depressed because he thought he was the only one, right? And that's what depression does. Basically, it's, woe is me. I'm the only one. Nobody else is facing the problems that I'm facing, you know? And so you get in this isolated bubble where you think that your problems are way blown out of proportion. You're the only one. And Elijah might have had a little bit of room for depression. I mean, he actually has a physical person wanting to like murder him. But yet the Lord reminds him, Elijah, you're not alone. I am the one that keeps my people. I am the one that saves them. Man, that's so encouraging. I'll tell you, as a pastor's heart, that is so encouraging to me. Just remember that ultimately God is the one that keeps his people. That God is the one that safeguards them. God is the one that raises them up. That he began a good work and you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. That that set him free from his fear but not only that but also god sent him out on a mission you see elijah was so self-focused he was so consumed with himself that his fear wrapped him in balls of anxiety he kept running and running and running never able to face it because he was consistently focused on himself god had to steer his direction outward and he had to remember he had to help elijah remember that this life is not about you be lost in my purpose. Be lost in my mission and my cause for you. Give your life away. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. That sounds so simple, but it's so difficult. We, we hear it over and over again, but giving our life away, choosing not to have control of our life, instead allowing God to have control, it is what sets us free from fear. So what gives us courage. Alex... Uh, McLaren says, Only he who can say the Lord is the strength of my life can say of whom shall I be afraid. When we know that the Lord is for us, who can be against us? I want to read Romans 8. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is how we see Christ in Elijah's story. Elijah came to draw God's people back to him. Elijah was the voice of one calling out, repent, believe. Jesus comes, though. Elijah came demonstrating God's word and his power, hoping that that would, and seeing that that would change. Jesus came drawing God's people back into himself through God's word, exemplifying that word, but ultimately through demonstrating God's powerful love. We see that that while Elijah showed God's power and the false prophets were killed, we see in jesus that he is slaughtered while those of us that are idolaters are spared that we might be changed and it's this love that sets us free it's the love that knows that even though we deserve death because this is the truth getting to travel on our honeymoon was was a blast we got to meet a, a ton of different people you know meeting people from all over the world different areas and one of the things that really became apparent in my conversations with just people and just getting to know them and care about them is that we really don't think that we're that sinful. We really think that we're pretty righteous, we're pretty good, that we're, we're able to save ourselves. And the gospel comes and it says that we deserve death, that we aren't able to change ourselves, we're not able to save us. And that offends us. It, even us as Christians, we hear that, but when we really get down to it, there are lots of areas in our life where we think that we should be responsible, we need to change and fix ourselves that we are really good and we're able to control and fix our life. And the gospel comes and says, you need to give up on you. You need to realize that you deserve death. And that only, only because of Christ's death for you, can you have life. It's his love, knowing all the evil, knowing all the pain and suffering that we've caused to God. But knowing that we are loved in spite of that, that changes us, that gives us courage. When you know that you're loved deeply by the one that controls everything, you can face anything. When you know that you are loved deeply by the one that controls everything, then you can face anything. No. Do you know that? Do you know that Christ loves you? Deeply? Do you know that he controls everything? That there is nothing outside of his control? Is that empowering you to face the things that you are afraid of in your life right now? Let us pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would, you would set us free. God, all of us face fears, all of us have things that are holding us captive. And so I pray, Christ, that you would help us to know your love, not intellectually, but instead um, that we would experience it, really. That, um, that old things would become new, God, for that's a sign of your spirit working in us, God, is that the things that we know become uh, real. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict and you would move and that you would set free, God, that we would not live in fear, but instead we would live by your love. We would live in joy and freedom. Thank you for Elijah, for his example. God, for how you used him, how you spoke to him, how you gave him courage. I pray that we would be a courageous people, not afraid to stand up, not afraid to obey, not afraid to give our lives away. We love you. It's in your prayer, Christ. Amen.